feeling a little sinister tonight, Danny. I am very sinister, Tyler. I might be feeling a little ambisinistrous. Uh, <laughs> we're getting there. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. This is Fried Squirms. We're going to get stoned talk another horror movie. It's going to be a lot of fun. The name of the episode Sinister. We've already mentioned Sinister. We're talking about Sinister today. I'm already a little stoned. I've already been recording today. It's just what I do. But officially, for this podcast, let's get to our green hits. Danny, what was this again? I know that you even gave me a choice, and I made a choice, and I can't remember what you told me it was. No worries. So this week, I brought in the strain wedding cake from local dispensary Ganja Goddess. And with this particular strain from their shop, the THC comes in right at 23.58%, which is about normal for this particular strain. It is a hybrid. And for those who are curious, Wedding Cake is an uplifting indica-dominant hybrid strain known for its relaxing and euphoric effects. It says uh, Wedding Cake is rich and tangy with earthy and peppery flavors. And it's also known as Pink Cookies. It is a phenotype of triangle mints. I like it, man. It's a good strain. I've had it before in the past. Maybe not from Ganja Goddess, but from a different dispensary. And I did bring over some cake and cookies, so I loaded up my vaporizer with this guy, and I'll do that a little bit later on in the show. But its lineage is cookies crossed with birthday cake. It is a 50-50 hybrid, and it is filled with cookies and creamy vanilla. That's both the flavors and aromas. And this one clocks in at like almost 29%. So I'm going to wait until a little bit later on before I crack into that guy. Oh, yeah. So this week I brought you some Hazmat OG from Flower. It's a cross between Chemdog 91 and Face Off OG. It's a high rather than a stoned, but it's not as cerebral as like, well, for instance, I actually smoked some headband earlier. Kind of just the, oh, I'm energized. And that's about it. A little bit more diesel a little bit limey. Should be a good time. And clocking in at like 24% on this, 24.3. So let's smoke these. Smoke them if you got them. (laughs) Hell yeah. And then we'll start talking about who and what went into Sinister with our guts and bolts. Guts and bolts. Hi, everybody. Tyler here. So from here on out, this episode might not sound quite as polished as normal. I'm in the middle of some technical difficulties, but was able to get the episode in a way where it is eminently, eminently listenable. Just maybe some parts are a little bit loud and some parts are might drop off and be a bit quieter than the than we're used to. Rest assured, I'm going to try to make sure that this doesn't impact anything going into the future but I wanted to make sure that you guys got your episode today. So with that, into the guts and bolts of Sinister. All right, guts and bolts for Sinister, right? So before we get into the who and what, throw down, spoiler-free setup, a true crime writer moves into a new town with his family trying to follow his next story lead. Which leads to sinister things. <laughs> About as plain and simple as you can get, right? Especially after he finds some old Super 8. Nice. I like it. And you're right. From week to week, we like to talk about the people who go into making the film and the actors and actresses who star in front of the camera. And this week, we have writer and director Scott Derrickson. And he was a writer on Urban Legends Final Cut. He was a director and a writer on Hellraiser Inferno. 
He was the writer and director on The Exorcism of Emily Rose. He was the director on The Day the Earth Stood Still. He also helped with Delivers from Evil. He was a writer on, I guess, a little bit of a spoiler, Sinister Part 2. He is the writer-director of Doctor Strange and also the films Bermuda and Labyrinth sequel, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. All right. And along with Scott as a writer, we have C. Robert Cargill. And Robert is known for such films as Sinister Part Two, Doctor Strange, No Man of God, and the upcoming films The Outer Limits and Deus Ex Movie, which I think these are still in pre-production, both of these films. Well, and speaking of pre-production, he's also going to be one of the executive producers on Doctor Strange 2. He's just not going to be directing it. Nice, dude. Yeah, also, However, Sam Raimi is going to be. Ooh, that's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I did a little, just a little bit of research on uh, Robert Cargill, and it is known that he is also a former film critic, and he went under the pseudonyms Massaworm when he was writing for Ain't It Cool News and Carlisle on Spill.com, so... Hmm. That was pretty interesting. He talked about that a little bit, and maybe I'll talk about that a little bit further and how it helped with his writing. Moving on, we have cinematographer Christopher Knorr, and Mr. Knorr is known for being the cinematographer on such things as Gotham, the television series from 2014 through 2017. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. He's also the DP on Godfather of Harlem, which is a television series from 2019. He's done a couple of different things, too, with documentaries, which is really neat. He did The Doctor, The Tornado, and The Kentucky Kid. And VH1 News presents Tracking the Monster with uh, Ashley Judd and India RE. So he's known for like some pretty interesting things. Mm-hmm. All right, editor on this is Frederick Torval. And Frederick is known for editing such things as District B-13, the film Taken, that is, with Liam Neeson. Oh, shit. And Kiss of the Dragon. All right, a gentleman we've actually talked about several times over. I actually wrote down the episodes we talked about him on, but I am speaking of Christopher Young, who helped compose the music for the film. And those episodes we talked about, Mr. Young, were episode seven when we reviewed Hellbound, Hellraiser Part Two. We've also talked about him on episode 92, which was one of our Halloween episodes, and that was for Trick or Treat. Oh, okay. <laughs> And he also helped with the music on episode 111 when we talked about Urban Legend. And for those who want to know more, just a few films of note, he helped with Species, The Grudge, Exorcism of Emily Rose, Drag Me to Hell. And I think we talked about it a little bit because we went and seen the remake of Pet Cemetery. I think it was last year, I believe. Yeah. And yeah, he helped with the music for that. He's also known for helping. Jesus, that feels like a lifetime ago. It does. This year has been fucked. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, but some other things of note. He composed music for such films as Set It Off, Entrapment, The Hurricane, Swordfish, Ghost Rider, Spider-Man 3, and The Shipping News, for which he was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Score. So this guy's got his hands on all kinds of cool films. No offense to Christopher Young, but when I go to watch Denzel Washington's The Hurricane, there's only one song I want to hear. (laughs) Bob Dylan's The Hurricane. Yeah, exactly, dude. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I'm just kind of scrolling through some of his other films, man, and he's got some really cool stuff to note. One that kind of stood out to me here was The Fly Part 2, so I was like, ooh, that's oh. pretty interesting. And A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 as well, Freddy's Revenge, so yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, the special effects were done by Fuse Effects. They helped, of course, with the visual effects, and Masters Effects, they helped with the makeup effects on the film. This was produced by Jason Blum and Brian Cavanaugh-Jones, 
Production companies were Alliance Films, Automatic, Blumhouse Productions, I Am Global, and Possessed Pictures. The distributors were Lionsgate and Summit Entertainment for the 2012 United States theatrical releases. Do you want to know how this was a Blumhouse movie? Uh, yeah. The budget's $3 million. Oh, yeah. The freaking box office. 7.7. Killed it, dude. <laughs> I have a couple of release dates. One was on March 11th, 2012, here in the United States at the South by Southwest Festival. And statewide, October 12th, 2012, here in the States. You've already mentioned it had a budget of about $3 million. Yeah, a little over $87 million worldwide at the box office. In the tagline I have for this, there are several, but this is the one that I chose, is once you see them, nothing can save you. A little ambiguous, but it'll make sense once we talk about the film. It's ambiguous, just don't look at the fucking poster. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? All right, so diving into the cast, we have some really cool people to talk about, some people we've actually talked about before. And one of those people happened to be Ethan Hawke, who plays the role of Ellison Oswalt. And we talked about Mr. Hawke when we reviewed a series of films, starting with The Purge on episode 74. And for those who need an introduction for whatever reasons... Um, Gattaca. Yeah, Gattaca, Training Day. I grew up watching the film Explorers, which was a Joe Dante film, which also had River Phoenix in it, so... Dead Poets, of course. Yeah, Dead Poets Society. Great film. He was also in a ton of films with uh, Julie Depley. So if you've mm. ever seen any of those, I think there's a trilogy of those. Uh, he was also in such things as like White Fang, Part 2, Great Expectations, The Newton Boys, Hamlet, Assault on Precinct 13. So, I mean, he's even done some theater work. Yeah. So another guy who happens to be a writer in real life. Interesting thing about him is he is not a horror movie fan. Mm. But we'll talk about the reasons why he was on board for this one. All right, we have Juliette Rylance. She plays the role of Tracy Oswalt in the film. And a few things of note from Juliette is she was in the film's Days and Nights, where she actually happened to be a producer alongside starring the film. She was also in A Dog's Purpose, Love After Love, and The Artist's Wife. In television, she was known for the role of Cornelia Robertson in the show The Nick, which actually I watched the first season of. It's actually pretty decent, man. I've heard good things about it, but I've never actually seen it myself. Yeah, like so the first season, really good. I need to maybe try to get back into that. She was also in 2016's American Gothic, where she played Allison Hawthorne Price. Right. Moving forward, we have Fred Thompson, who plays the role of sheriff in the film. And this gentleman, a uh, pretty interesting thing to note is, if I'm not mistaken, he was a former politician from out of Tennessee, where he actually ran for presidential aspirations i want to say is it like 2016 or 12 somewhere on there yeah he was a senator from tennessee and ran for president in 2008 hmm. eight i was a little off all right so what's interesting about him of course is you know aside from politics is he jumped in the films and some of those early films that he starred in happened to be the hunt for red october awesome. days of thunder die hard part two a Cape film Fear. I love, Cape Fear is awesome, but a film I love is Necessary Roughness because mm. of Scott Bakula. He was also in Iron Eagle Part 3. I don't know if you're ever in any of those <laughs> films, man. He was in Evil Knievel from 2004. He was in the film Racing Stripes where he voiced the role of Sir Trenton. And more recently, oh, man, God's Not Dead Part 2. I hate to break it to you, but... Uh, <laughs> And he's also known for being in a shit ton of episodes of Law & Order as D.A. Arthur Branch. I mean, that's starting oh, with shit, that's the right. original, yeah, all the way through like Criminal Intent and Conviction. 
And let's see, more recently, he was in the show Allegiance from 2015 as an FBI director. So, yeah. All right, we have James Renson. He plays a role of deputy so-and-so. It's actually a gentleman we've talked about briefly because we talked about him when we went to the theater and mm-hmm. watched It Chapter 2, which was really neat, man, seeing him in that. Because he was one of the best parts of it. Yeah, he was, man. His back and forth was really good, but he played the role of Eddie Kasparik. Spoiler, he's great in this, too. Yes, he is, man. Hopefully, we'll see more of him in the future, but for those who are curious, some of his early roles include his role as Dingy Dave in A Dirty Shame. He was also in such things as 2008's Prom Night, where he played Detective Nash. He was in Empire State as Agent Nugent back in 2013. He was also in the film Gemini and What We Found. Apparently, I need to rewatch season two of The Wire because he's in that. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, that's pretty cool, man. He played uh-huh. Ziggy Sabotka yeah, for 12 episodes. More recently, he was in the show 50 States of Fright for two episodes as Sebastian Kleppner. And he was in Treme, actually another show I've talked about a couple mm. different times as Nick for 10 episodes back in 2011. So cool to see him in this one. All right, a gentleman who goes uncredited, even though you do see him in this film, and I'm talking about Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays the role of Professor Jonas. And for those... Jonas. (laughs) That's such a good song, man. But for those who are curious, we talked about Vincent D'Onofrio for our longest episode to date when we reviewed The Cell on our fifth episode. episode ever. I know. I don't know if we'll ever top it. I don't know if we ever need to top it, (laughs) considering. So a few things of note. When I think of Vincent D'Onofrio, I always think of him as Private Leonard Gomer Pyle Lawrence in Full Metal Jacket. How can you not? And then some other things of note, he was in JFK. It's like he was wearing a suit, uh, Edgar <sighs> suit. Oh, no kidding. He was in Ed Wood. If you've ever seen Men in Black, he played the role of Edgar. He was also in the Newton Boys. Even if you're Jesus. not into fucking comic book stuff, him, oh, dude. his kingpin is astounding i agree in marvel's daredevil on netflix yeah i watched that first season it was good man he is so so good in that role he was in jurassic world he sure was he's been in a ton of stuff Mm -hmm. man just like looking through his filmography another one of those guys was in law and order criminal intent for 141 episodes of detective robert gordon so huh if you haven't seen him i don't know where you've been so moving forward we have Claire Foley, she plays the role of Ashley Oswalt. She's been in such films as Win Win. She was also in the film Southpaw. She was on an, an episode or two of Orange is the New Black back in 2014. Ooh. She was also in The Great Gilly Hopkins and the television show Gotham from 2014 through 16. We have Michael Hall Daddario. He plays the role of Trevor Oswalt. He was in such shows as 2008's John Adams. He was in the movie People Like Us. He was also in the television series Are We There Yet from 2010 through 2012. All right. We have Blake Mizrahi, who plays the role of Sleepy Time Boy slash Christopher Miller. Mm-hmm. He was in What Would You Do? We have Nick Young, who plays the role of Mr. Boogie in this film, and some other things of note from him. He was in Max Keeble's Big Movie and Sinister Part Two. So... Pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I know you gave us a brief setup of what this film entails, which should give our listeners some warnings heading into the film. How to explain the warnings on this one. So this movie ended up getting an R, but not for its actual content. 
it's more for the themes and the tone. I agree. For and when you like sit there and think about what's going on. Absolutely. And it's very similar to something we saw happen with a Hannibal episode, actually. Nothing you technically see on screen actually even pushes into our territory. It's because of what's actually happening that it gets an R. I agree. That being said, there are some extremely <laughs> inventive and fucked up killings that happen in this movie. And in a lot of ways, also really isn't for the squeamish if you're really good at imagining things yourself. I concur once again with that. If movies make you really, really build a really strong mind picture in your head, this movie will fuck with you. Yeah. <laughs> I also read where this movie, when they, when I say they, I guess it was like a group of, I don't know, what scientists or researchers, but when they hooked people up to like test your like heartbeats per minute mm -hmm. when you watch this film, this one rated as like one of the scariest, if not the scariest, in terms of your heartbeat for some of those That's those scenes. So I was like, ah, I would argue that it's, you know, a scariest movie. That's very subjective, but it has been measured. So if that gives it any credence, there you go. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is one of those ones where, like, it's an R. I would consider it more along the lines of a mainstream PG-13, like The Conjuring. Yeah, good but, point. Like, it's kind of fucked up when you think about it, and that's why yeah. it gets the R. Like, it's not very tame. Right, really. it's not necessarily the on-screen stuff that you see. It's it's all the, the intent behind it and the implications behind all that stuff that's really frightening and horroring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I guess that's your warning. I mean, you know, like, your usual cuss words actual, and stuff. Yeah, there's not much actual violence nah. or blood or... No, you're right. But, you know, of course, we'll delve all into those details... As we find out how it made a squeal, let's find out how it made a squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right, so after that warning, I kind of feel like maybe we should talk about the overall, because this is our spoiler section anyway, so if you're in here, we're talking about the fucking movie, right? So this movie got an R because Mr. Boogie's convincing kids to kill their own parents. Yeah, and that's... Kind of like that episode of Hannibal didn't get to air... Because yeah. it's all about a serial killer who's convincing kids to kill their parents. Yeah, and that's pretty fucked. So just that content matter alone is going to give it a higher rating. Otherwise, like... You're right. I mean, aside from that, if it weren't for that fact, this would definitely be a PG-13 along the lines of The Conjuring, like you were mentioning mm -hmm. earlier, and probably some of the other films in the Blumhouse filmography. Yeah, so... Like, this is another one of those movies. We talked about it some when we talked about The Conjuring. I kind of intentionally stayed away from for a bit because even though it got the R rating, all the trailers and everything, I'm like, yeah. cool. It was the same feeling I got from The Conjuring, same feeling I got from Insidious, which I still haven't watched, same feeling I got from Paranormal Activity that took me <laughs> years to get to. Although well, I have watched all of those at this point. like I can vouch for you there because I get the same feeling. And we've mentioned it you know, a little bit too in The Conjuring where... It doesn't mean it's bad. No, no, it certainly doesn't mean that. It's just, just that. It's maybe not for me. I don't think we're the, its target audience, per se. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, we're horror movie fans, but this isn't really the subgenre that we're really into. I can appreciate it. It yeah. has its place. Look at the box office numbers. And it's kind of like when we talk about all the different Scream clones. Yeah, exactly. Not that we dude. don't appreciate them, but we kind of understand what they are at the same time. Right. And I totally agree with that, too. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. they're fun, but, you know. So that's the vibes I always got from this movie. 
And then when it came last week and we're talking about, well, we've been kind of going off and talking about some of the more fucking out there fringe shit, especially coming off of fucking Singapore sling. Because, <laughs> you know, European art house horror. You know, we got to hit those. <laughs> we're like, maybe we should do something that was popular. Yeah, and I think and this is a good one. And then I brought this up because I really like CinemaSins. Like on YouTube, they do like the everything wrong with. And then yeah. I listen to their podcast, SinCast. Those guys don't shut up about this movie at times. And so I got really fucking curious. I'm like, these guys have seen a ton of movies. And even if I don't always agree with these guys, like I always respect like the insight and stuff that they're able to bring about these movies. So there has to be something there that they're all keying off of. So I was like, all right. I need to watch this at some point, so that's why I brought it up. It was an excuse to finally get to it. Yeah, for sure. I think I get why they enjoy it so much. I think there are some things about this movie that are truly masterfully done. It's just, at the end of the day, still not quite for me. Although yeah, it's more for it. me than I thought it was. And I think that's the same takeaway I get from this. is like, yeah, I'm not necessarily its target audience. I appreciate the film. Like, you're right. There are some really good moments that I thought was masterfully done. But then again, it's just like, ah, this particular subgenre, it's just maybe if I was a lot younger, you know, like coming into the horror genre, this one might affect me a little bit more. But, mm -hmm. you know, we've kind of been there, done that kind of thing. Even if I was even in like my early 20s, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. I think that's but a good point, too. I just hadn't been weathered by the world yet. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> and if you follow us and you've seen the stuff that we reviewed, this is, you know, kind of a walk in the park, so to speak. That being said, like, so far, out of that bunch of movies that I still haven't seen Insidious, but out of that bunch of movies that I always mentally grouped this into, this by far is my favorite of them so far. I like this yeah. way more than I liked The Conjuring. Likewise. I liked this way more than, we haven't talked about it on the show, but I like this way more than I like Paranormal Activity. Yep, likewise. And I will go ahead and say this. I'm going to jump out on a limb <laughs> and say I'm almost certain you're going to like this a lot more than Insidious. Insidious in my opinion, is a little bit more akin to The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and doesn't it even have Homeboy in it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that definitely helps. I am curious to finally round it all out and watch Insidious, especially because it was supposed to cross over at some point. Yeah, it's in like then... an, it, some kind of universe. Yeah. I'm actually super curious to see Sinister 2 because it's supposed to be really not good. I heard, yeah. But it's also supposed to be really graphic. And where every time in this movie where it cuts away, it shows you in the second one. Well, maybe that might be our bag of tea. We'll see. Right? You never know, yeah. We are a little bit of gore hounds. Yeah, admittedly so. This was still, I mean... It had its moments, dude. It had its moments. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this episode, I like this movie even more than I do right now. Yeah, sometimes it does take kind of talking films through to you know, give you maybe a better appreciation the more you say it out loud instead of just having it in our heads. Let's see, how do we want to go through this? I mean, honestly... We, we can do, this, like, bare bones it. The setup is a lot of the movie. Because a lot of the first half of the movie is really just establishing with the characters. Done really well. Yeah, but I agree. It's Ethan Hawke's a fucking... Kind of, at this point, it has been... Yeah, he's still chasing his... True crime writer. Yeah, he's chasing that... Was it Kentucky Blood? Mm -hmm. His very successful true crime story. And everything since then has been kind of a bomb. And... I did watch the Cinema Sins, you know, Everything Wrong. What's oh, did in? you? Yeah, I did. It was good. But they kind of say it, that Fred Thompson, the sheriff character yeah. in this film, he pretty much spells out the film, yeah. you know? 
And that's what you get. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's chasing an old story. He got this, not this story, but the previous one's wrong. Let a killer go, et cetera, et cetera. They don't want another rehashing of that story in this town of Pennsylvania as the setting. Okay, I wanted to bring that up. He tells them, your bad theory helped a killer go free. First off, I don't care what extra things, because this happens in real life too. Sometimes these true crime writers truly in their investigations find out things that help sway cases. Good point. But you all shouldn't be listening to him for his theory. His shit should just be confirming the theories that your fucking attorneys and shit are putting together anyway. Exactly. And that's all it is. It's just if kind somebody of a... listened to him, they already were just being fucking lazy in their job. Because he's agree. not a part of the system. No, he's not. He's just, at best, he's just an investigative writer. If he comes up with something and he's willing to share it, and I think he needs to be or else there's probably some sort of crime being perpetrated there anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Probably holding info or who knows. I don't knows. know, like, all the details of this sort of <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then you don't let him make the theory. Uh-uh. You let him have input, maybe, because he's the one that found the shit. But your people are supposed to be the one making the theory. Nothing he did let a fucking killer go free. No, exactly. That kind of pissed me off. I was like, uh, what fucking logic does this make sense? Like, what world does this actually make sense? I don't know. I don't know. It, it's a, such a small little fucking point to get so heated over. But I was like, what? No, you guys, he's just a fucking writer. <laughs> you could say maybe it's a, like a meta critique of media. You know, the over-sensationalism of, of media hype and stuff like that, too, perhaps. Coming off the success of his former book. Well, and it's sad how true to life it kind of is, because, like, I think even when this COVID shit started, Max Brooks was getting calls left and right from media outlets because he wrote World War Z. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so because he wrote a zombie virus book, everybody in the world was wanting to talk to him and listen to what he had to say. And he's like, no, dude, like, don't listen to me. There's fucking scientists and shit that study this shit. There was another, I don't want to say their name because I'm probably wrong. It's something like a John Grisham or something mm. like that that wrote specifically about a coronavirus outbreak. But this is like from the 80s, maybe even early 90s. Mm-hmm. But it's just, all that was just hypothetical. So it's same thing. Like, you don't go to them because they happen to have written a story based off that for their expertise. <laughs> like, no, dude. Yeah. And those are a, a step removed example yeah. from what some of these true crime writers actually do. But no, you're you're right. They though. still shouldn't have the final theory that you're basing yeah. things on. You know, I think a great example of what we're talking about here, and it's such a interesting phenomenon because I'm interested in that kind of stuff too, like mm-hmm. murder cases and the unsolved mysteries and all this other stuff. And what I'm getting at is how much television programming that you can have access to, or documentaries that you can have access to exactly what we're talking about here because the experts aren't doing their fucking job or you know (laughs) dropping the ball and you have to have to rely on other people to kind of pick up the missing pieces so to speak so yeah i think that's kind of an interesting little bit of a glean in this film Mm -hmm. i guess talking about this towards the beginning of of the movie makes as much sense as any time because it's something that i noticed through the movie one of the things that i truly feel this movie does masterfully until the very end is it's pacing with the revealing of information and using that to build tension this is another one of those stories that where almost from the outset they're fucked oh yeah (laughs) once you know the entire picture of what's going on 
you can look back at it and think they're fucked the entire time. As soon as this started, they're fucked. You're I dealing agree with, with a that. god. Yeah. Sorry. They've even mentioned it as a pagan deity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're fucked. <laughs> you're already fucked. You landed in the web. Sorry. Yep. Not our fault. Not necessarily your fault. Just no, no, no. It's just shit happens. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So that's the eventual big picture. But the way this movie plays out in the storytelling is you get to see the story of what the character learns from just a couple steps ahead. You still don't know the entire picture, but you know a little bit more information than the characters on screen, which makes what they're Mm. doing more terrifying. Because uh, you know just enough to know when they're in danger when they don't know. Yeah, I know we've talked about this before on a couple of other films where, you know, as a viewer, sometimes that's a little bit more effective in terms of the scare factor where you have a few of the details ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the characters are still piecing it together because, yeah, there's dread, there's tension. And you're just like, oh, shit, what the fuck's going to happen? And this film does a good job of that, yeah. And yeah, some movies you know more than others. Sometimes you know from the get-go what the end game is. You know that there's a fucking bomb under the table. This one doesn't go that far. Yeah. You're maybe two steps ahead. You don't know that for sure that it's something supernatural. But when you find out, <laughs> he doesn't find out till 10 minutes later. Right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, <laughs> he's like, oh, now I get it. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you're fucked. Up until the end. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get there. But these opening scenes with the sheriff are a great example on how the writing just is gradually unfolding the world a little bit for you. You see them moving in. Cool. You get a little bit of the family interaction. Just the way the camera moves through the house, you realize that the house isn't going to be important. Yeah. Like they're not setting it up as a place. Yeah, like another character perhaps. Yeah. Or as like a, a place where location matters. Yeah. That's solid, too. But then you get into, okay, cool, this, this, this. Oh, he's a writer. Oh, that's nice. And then you get out there and you start talking to the sheriff and you get a little bit more information. And it's not them just saying information at you. It's all natural. It's like, okay, so he's kind of fallen on hard times. Okay, so they kind of don't want him here. And then you get that little drop at the end of like, oh, yeah, and this pretty fucking distasteful yeah this is and real you bad put taste. it together in your head you're like oh shit because it opened on oh man yeah it opened on that first killing yep and that was which we haven't somehow really? haven't even talked about yet because oh, man that was, that was awesome. inventive and good and a fucking brilliant horror kill i totally agree because you're like whoa that's the first scene that you see is that murder and you're like whoa this is interesting i want to see what they're gonna do with that and then you see the, the backyard and the tree still in its place. <laughs> they hadn't even pruned that fucking limb or nothing. They just kept it the way it was. Yeah, so you know. Once and you see that, you know. They don't say it out loud till later for anybody who's struggling to catch up. They do eventually say some things out loud and give you exposition. But like I'd say 90% of the audience at that point is on board. They realize exactly <laughs> what he's doing. And how this builds into his character and like what he truly wants throughout all this, no matter what he actually says. Yeah. He wants that fame back. He wants that money back. Yeah, ego, man. Like you said, he's kind of a desperate man at this point, Mm -hmm. you know? And not that you can fault him, but man, that's a fucked up way of getting back into your game, you know? (laughs) I'm going to buy this house. (laughs) It's on the market. It was cheap. Yeah. No kidding. 
and in a fucked up way Ooh. to keep it from your wife. That being said, one of the weakest points of this movie uh, is that wife, when you pay attention to just her scenes, is one of the most unlikable characters I've seen in a while. <laughs> she doesn't do hardly anything in this movie except for, like, yell and belittle the kids. That, and she contradicts herself. There's a specific scene where she contradicts her belief in what he's doing. And that, mm. I, I'm talking about Ethan Hawke's character. But you're right. Some of the characters, just because it, it mostly focuses on Ethan Hawke's character... Mm. Some of them do feel a little flat. Like, I feel the sun, like you get a little bit of a, a curveball with the, the kids. The sun is a really well done red herring. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the good thing about it. And the two moments that you get are fucked up with him, you know, specifically with his night terrors and stuff like that. The first one being like, <laughs> fuck, creepy. But I get it. It's like you can't do too much because then it detracts maybe from what this film is really about. Mm-hmm. You know, like him investigating this story and it gets more fucked up the further we get into it. I'm surprised I don't see this movie higher up more often or even mentioned more often because I feel like I've seen it completely left off on found footage lists. You're right. I mean, there's a lot of it because that's, I mean, that's essentially how this film unfolds and the stories unfold and what have you. Sinister is some of the best done found footage oh. since... I mean, it's Dude. it's my top three found footage with Cannibal Holocaust and Poughkeepsie. Man, that's good ones, too. I'd still put Savage Land up there, too. They oh, did a yeah. great job, too. I would agree. In terms of the use of found footage in the film to unfold the story and to use actual Super 8 millimeter mm-hmm. to do it, it's effective. It's gruesome. To me, it makes this, the stories more interesting. It makes me want to see how all this stuff unfolds. My understanding, I've never worked with it myself, my understanding is that it is, in fact, super easy to edit Super 8. But do, like, <laughs> the editing tools usually come, like, bundled with a projector? Uh, dude, if it does, that's sweet. <laughs> Maybe. Because when he suddenly needed to edit some of that footage, <laughs> all yeah. he had to do was Google, and he's like, cool, this is all I have to do. And I'm, I'm like, where done. did you get those tools, son? Like, I don't have well, Super 8 tools lying around. I think the interesting thing about this film... I doubt you film, do, because you were actually using Google. Yeah. Well, also, I mean... Which, we're, that alone doesn't happen often enough in horror movies. Uh, yeah, the use of, of modern technology and researching stuff. Mm-hmm. You have it at your disposal. Which is a little bit sad, because then it kind of cuts out some of those old-school library scenes that you get. But all that aside, what I was going to say was interesting is the whole fact that a deity, a supernatural being is using Super 8, <laughs> you know, and having the whole setup is like, here, not only do you get the home movies, you got your projector and your editing machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it, it's silly thought because I you know, always think silly shit, but regardless, I, I still think it's like an interesting way to, like I said, incorporate the Super 8 in this film, and it's done great, man. We got into that somehow through talking <laughs> about how the wife is shitty. Yeah, There's also yeah. one section in the beginning where they're both being dumb. And that is, the kid has a fucking fantastic point about the fact that he's going to find out at school anyway. No, the you're right. The kids are going to tease him about this. Yeah, it's not like... Please just fucking tell me so I don't have to go learn the shittiest way imaginable. Right. Especially because kids are fucking terrible. Oh, also, I've man. been watching a lot of Big Mouth, so kids are fucking terrible. <laughs> well, you know, we're at this age now, too, where we can say we've been through it. We've seen it. It's, you know, it's been exemplified who knows how many different times through media and what have you. But that's a solid point. It's like 
this isn't the first time they've had a move that's already been established and we know what he does for a living and yeah you're right it's like why not tell him up front so that way he doesn't have to find out through some shitty school kids you know the kid made the most sense in that entire fucking breakfast scene <laughs> he did he did all right and, and this is where kind of her contradiction comes into play mm-hmm. right because she's kind of establishing that she's trying to safeguard the kids from what he does so you know she's like keep your door closed don't talk about it what have you and then at that same scene you're just talking about when the kids are going to school, their first day of school she's like something like uh, have fun with your murder or your crimes or something to that effect mm-hmm. you know it's like it's like what the fuck <laughs> what was that all about what's funny though about her being so gung-ho about the kids not seeing that shit is that in the context of this movie that's some of the best thing that could happen because kids are especially vulnerable to being possessed when seeing the Mr. Boogie. Precisely. I, as silly as Mr. Boogie says, I'm not also going to call it fucking Boogool the entire time. I think yeah. Boogool is kind of fucking dumb, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's another one of those things, too, where this is not a real character, you know, based off of, even though they're they're setting it up to be like... I'll give it that it looks legit enough. Right, like right, right. When you see it written out, like, it looks like a fucking Arabic. ancient Mesopotamian yeah. deity of some sort. Like, I, I would, just think I would saying get it. it out loud sounds dumb. Yeah. Bagul. Bagul. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> Mr. Boogie. And sometimes pasta bagul. Yeah. <laughs> I like when stories kind of try to do that a little bit. Like, even though it's, it's not based on anything in truth... It's still a fun thing to play with because there's elements of the unknown when you get mm-hmm. into ancient cultures and, you know, there's text written about supernatural stuff. So, you know, it could be believable enough to where, you know, you could pass it off is what I'm getting at. One of the other high points for me that this movie, like I dug about it, was because of the way it unfolded information and you were constantly learning new things. As soon as he found some fucking film, I'm like, oh, so there's just going to end up being film of his family. Oh, eventually, Or of yeah. him at some point. Yeah, 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 That is now set in stone just because he found this. Man. Like, you can't not do that now or else you're just going to let us all down. <laughs> I don't know how to better explain it. I don't know if there's a name for that trope, but it's going to happen now. But I was still interested to see how it happened. Likewise. All right. When he uses those films, like I said, to learn and glean information and stuff like that, to me, already, I'm in. Is what I'm getting at. I'm in. I want to see how this stuff works. And the way they do that in this film is they just give you a little bit of a picture of the family. And then you get to see their murders. And then you're like, okay, there's always a kid missing. What's the point of that? You know? And then you get this character who's like, okay, what's its association? Then when everything unfurls, like you were saying, it's like, oh, this is one of those stories where once they set foot in that house, it was already over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And then once they removed themselves, they sped it up. It's like what the yeah. cop told him, deputy so-and-so. And I was like, okay, that's clever. That's actually smart writing and setting up the story and what have you. It's especially smart in a meta sense because you realize that he's figured it out wrong. He, <laughs> yeah. he thinks he's in. This is really funny considering what we fucking watched for Halloween. When we watched, what the fuck? What's the Night of the that? Demons. When we watched Night of the Demons... There's a scene that specifically points out the difference between haunting and demonic possession. He thinks he's in a haunted house. Yeah. It's a demonic possession. <laughs> yep. Uh, like, whoops. 
Gotcha. Different rules. But it's funny on a meta level that he figures out that he's basically in a horror movie. Yeah, oh, fuck me. Not that literally, but like, at the core, he's like, oh shit, I'm in a haunted house movie, basically. And does exactly what you should do in a haunted house movie. Right, but uh, like you were saying, wrong movie, wrong rules. (laughs) Not his fault, it's just, yeah, he put it together too late. Mm Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I do like about this genre, I guess, and, like, demonic stuff. And once again, I guess just kind of the writing of this movie. Like, Ethan Hawke's character is a decent researcher, and he's a smart and capable guy. He's not a fuck-up. Like, he might have kind of been fucking up some lately, but it doesn't seem for lack of trying other than his slow descent into alcoholism. Yeah. All right, since you brought that up, too, I did know somewhat that this film you can't help notice and we've talked about this time and time again it's drawing from certain influences and Mm -hmm. previous films and what have you and it reminded me a little bit of like jack nicholson in the shining and maybe some of the projection scenes like uh, sam neill's character in the mouth of madness and stuff like Mm -hmm. that you know it just reminded me a little bit of those films and i was like okay that's really good anyway fuck it I can't remember what I was saying, but what you just said got me off on a different tangent. There's one other movie this movie weirdly reminded me of that is unfair to compare it to because of how fucking good that movie is, even if though I also have problems with the ending of that one. This movie's kind of just weirdly hereditary. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Down to the fact that there's like family problems kind of going on yeah. under the surface of it all. <laughs> yeah, there is some family tension, mm-hmm. some family drama. No doubt about it. Oh, yeah. Dissenting a little bit. So in the end, it's not that he's, like, not capable. He just figures it out too late. Right. And just a little bit wrong. Right. And you can't fault him because who the fuck would ever think that they're caught up in this supernatural possession style, you know, He's doing all of the rational things first, which is, okay, first, is somebody sneaking into my house? Mm -hmm. Second, am I going crazy? Yeah, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Because I keep running into weird shit. Yeah. Is it me? And then you kind of have to be convinced that it's supernatural beyond that because supernatural doesn't fucking exist. And there's a line from James Ranson, Deputy So-and-So's character, where he says that, you know, they have this little sit-down where they're discussing what happened the night before. And you could tell that Ethan Hawke's character's distraught. And he tells him, you know, I heard noises upstairs. And he's like, look... They're talking about supernatural stuff. And he's like, yeah, you don't believe in anything. He's like, no, I believe in all of that stuff. (laughs) You need to talk to Professor Jonas because he's talking about the symbol and, you know, he's pretty much spelling it out. And he's like, yeah, you you need to talk to this guy. You're in over your head, dude. He's like, not that I don't believe you because I do believe you, but. Dude, Ransom was so good in this. Yeah, I like them. He's set up to be like a bumbling character, but he's not. He's very competent. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's the one who puts it together before because he's not thinking in those logical sense. He's got to think outside the box. Also, I really liked D'Onofrio's character. He was good, too. Like, it's set up that, like, <laughs> D'Onofrio's character has had other weird outings. It sounds like it. The and way it he has talks. me curious. And it doesn't have me curious in a way where it's like, I wish I would have got that movie instead. <laughs> but, like, yeah. at the end of the day, it's something extra to think about where I'm like, oh, dude, how fucking dope would that be? Especially yeah. just because D'Onofrio's the man. He, and apparently he supposedly killed between number one and number two. 
Oh, I did damn. see that in some of my research. I didn't research. see that. That sucks, but it's okay. But it doesn't mean you couldn't have like the early adventures of that would be really character. cool. <laughs> A little offshoot subplot. Mm-hmm. I like it. The reason he was in this film, and I don't know why he goes uncredited, but he and Ethan Hawke are friends, mm. and because Ethan got this, he wanted. Vincent to do a small part, and they did. And apparently, the scenes that he had, D'Onofrio, they were done in the same house, just in a different room. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I was like, okay, that's <laughs> got him. That was all cool. Yeah, dude, let's talk about that footage. Those killings. Are yeah, I mean, we've been skirting all around it, but yeah. Okay, so that's some of the best part of the film. The hanging. That was dope. That was cool. Yeah. Especially because it took me a second to figure out what was going on. I saw, like, the movement by the tree, and I'm like, uh, oh. <laughs> oh, man. Did you hear or read anything about what happened when they were first filming that scene? Because it was all stunt people in the get-ups. Oh, shit, no. All right, so the tree itself is a prop, so they built that. But the first stunt coordinator apparently tied them up wrong and. One of them almost died because of the way they were getting strangled. Oh, shit. Yeah, so he got fired, and they brought in another stunt coordinator, and they got it, of course, right. But I was like, oof, because it does look like a real family getting hung up, and mm-hmm. they're kicking. You're like, oh, this is... Let's talk about the Man. full version. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. The piece de resistance <laughs> is the little girl going and swinging from the fucking... Sh- that dude. was fucking... I was like, she's like oh. pushing the feet. Yeah. And then swinging. You're like, damn, this is fucked. Well, which one was after that one? I remember. Mom, oh, okay. I remember them in order. Okay. So the second one that he watches is barbecue 79 because it starts off with like, I guess a father and his son's fishing. Mm-hmm. You see the car and it looks like somebody's stalking them. And then the family's chained up inside the car and the car is inside the garage this one was the least effective for me because there was so much you couldn't see. That's a good point. It was hard to even tell that they were chained up in the car at first. I almost thought, I was like, are they underwater or... And then, yeah, you know, you see what happens. That was the first use, and I liked how they did this in this film, is when they are showing the horrific things that are happening, it is on screen, but it's in a reflection of Ethan Hawke's glasses. Right. And I was like, that's effective. Because even though they're not really showing you, they're showing you enough. That you're putting it together. Right, because of his reactions. Mm-hmm. And he has to sell it. And I think the score, because the score accompanies a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. too. And it ratches up some of the dread that you're supposed to feel. So I felt like that was really crafted well. So next would be Sleepy Time? Pool Party 66. Oh, pool Party <laughs> is maybe my second favorite after the first one yeah that one's that one's fucked pool party i didn't put it together the first time around even though they show it pretty blatantly supposedly i was looking for them and i was having a hard time finding it in some of the other segments but supposedly in every segment you can see the green poison Okay. okay somewhere gotcha Pool party is the first one where the camera shows you it for a second, and you just don't put together what you're looking at until you yep. know later on. <laughs> you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's how they got them. But that one was fucked. Dude, yeah, they're in the lawn chairs getting drug into the pool. And you can see the cinder blocks tied underneath. Yeah, I'm like, damn, that is fucked. Yeah, that's horrific. Dude, I'm not going to lie. Like, a lot of the 
quote-unquote inventive killings that we see in some of the more hardcore like serial killer themed horror and shit isn't as good as these ideas all right i watched an interview with ethan hawk and this is you know getting to your point is he said the things that he thinks that draw people to horror and why it's you know popular is because of things like that like people have a natural fear of drowning people have a natural fear of what's being portrayed like burning alive and Mm -hmm. being hung and those are practical fucking fears Mm -hmm. and it's effective because it hits more on the visceral you know senses the home invasion part of it of wondering if somebody's up in your fucking attic because that's a natural fear that's a practical fear we've all probably gone through it at some point so that's why i think this film is very effective too it's like you would not want to be in any of those situations. I mean, regardless of what genre film, <laughs> but specifically these, like I have a natural fear of drowning. I don't fuck that no, noise. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I don't want to be burned alive. Especially like that. No, no, thank you. I don't want to be hung up either. No, thanks. Yeah. We're going to get to it, which arguably is my favorite and one. Hooded. You don't even know when it's coming. Dude, no. Just waiting. You just knowing that at a certain point, you know, you're getting lifted up off your feet and that's that. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you kicking. Sleepy Time was the most boring one for me. Yeah, that one was just, you know, family drank the juice, <laughs> got their throat slit. I mean, yeah, that sucks. No one wants that to happen. But, yeah, that was not the best. I would have maybe shown that, like, second so that you were going out on a bang instead of... Yeah, because it feels like each one is getting well, more ratcheted up. I guess it does go out on a bang because after Sleepy Time, you get... Lawn work? What was the name of the video? Lawn work. <laughs> Lawn work 86. Dude, I was going to say, that's probably my favorite one. Because you don't know quite exactly what's going on. I don't know how I forgot about Lawn, lawn work's my number one. Holy shoo. Yeah. And that's once again. As soon as you see what's happening. All you get is the sound and his oh, reaction. Dude. And it was so effective. Super so effective. So fucking effective. <laughs> Because that is a once again a natural reaction. That's like what the fuck? Yeah. Whoa. I was not anticipating that. Even though I'd seen this prior, I totally forgot about that. Man, that was That's the best one. Woo! <laughs> I was like, this movie's off the chain, dude. Yeah, that, that was, was good. Really fucking good. I agree. Like I so said, that score, his reaction and just the nature of the scene. Even the cutaway, you don't need to see. You can put two and two together. Mm-hmm. That's even more effective using your imagination to fill in the blanks. So we've already said Boogool, Mr. Boogie. He's a fucking old school deity, the child eater. He's possessing these kids, making them turn on their families. Doesn't seem like he needs to, but he's been having them follow a certain pattern. I think kind of just because it gets his rocks off, to be honest. <laughs> Probably. There's nothing that states he has to go through this weird fucking pattern that he does. No, that I'm aware of. I think he does it just because of the way it ratchets up the tension to make sure that he gets him to the place that he does. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's effective. You know, all the information that we get in the film leads to all these conclusions, so it's not too far-fetched. But he doesn't really do anything no, he just, himself. He's kind he's, of the hype guy. just his influence, right? Yeah. Which means... Upon thinking about it, one of the other things that makes the scene a little bit more terrifying is Ethan Hawke in the attic before he gets pulled under. There ends up being video of that. Yeah. yeah. Which means all those noises he was hearing was because Ashley was in that attic the entire time. Probably fucking around with those kids or that kid, Stephanie. It's been established they're sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. And not only that, the very next scene is where 
Ash asks her mom how to make dad's coffee. Yep. He likes it a specific way. So you're right. They're establishing these things that are either going to play out or... This is one of these movies that are really good for rewatching, but it's not one that the rewatch will make you be like, oh, maybe this means this. Yeah, It's no, no, a rewatch no, no. where you're like, now that you see the entire picture, you get to see it play out step by step. And you're like, oh, that's... That's why I like that that style. It's credited to the writing and just making these things a little bit vague enough to where that payoff makes it like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. That was cool second time. Maybe even third time around, you're catching other stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Not too far after that do we get the kids sequence, right? Yeah. The fucking ghost kids. Yeah, the yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. I don't know how you felt about that, but this is one of those things where I'm like, I get what they're doing. I feel like it's more artistic than it is scare factor for me. It seemed weirdly out of place in the movie. I liked what it was by itself rather than I like it being a part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying it stylistically it looks good. I felt like these kids were It's a super cool idea. Hitting their marks. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's effective maybe in a different film. I get what they're trying to do with this film, but I'm like, ah, I think some of this, and it has been noted too, even the very last scene in the film, which we'll eventually get to, but the studio had a little bit of influence, and I'm wondering Mm. how much this is studio influence. Well, if studio influence led to that, it's one of the better cases of it happening because it is a really gorgeous, fluid scene. No doubt. It just doesn't feel at home in this movie. No, no. And that's no discredit once again. It's stylish. Actually, I heard about how they did it with kind of interlacing his part and the kid's part because they use like a high motion capture camera for the kids. You know, that's why they could slow it down and matched him up with them, I guess the same speed. So it's effective. It looked good. You know, it kind of makes you wonder how they pull that off. Once again, it's really good. But yeah, it just felt like out of place. It's like, who are they trying to scare? Us or him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because it's not really working, man. I wasn't a big fan of that per se in this film. It's not bad. It's just, eh. What do we get after that? That's when he, like, he gets home. Like, he gets the call. He finds out the shit that he did wrong, but it kind of doesn't matter. He gets the extended footage where he gets to see what he was just told anyway, basically, and what he's already figured out, which is that it's the kids. Exactly. He figures that out before he sees it. That's another scene that was almost more for the audience than anything, but it was still cool. Because, like, you don't see where Stephanie is in that first one. Yeah, exactly. You and just... so getting to see her come out from behind the tree, you're like, like oh, oh, okay. Damn. Yep. And then when you see it again, you can kind of see a little bit of movement along the side right. of the trunk because you, you know where she's at now. And Exactly. It does make it more effective, you know. Like I said, when all these things start to come to fruition because it's like, oh, okay, it was these fucking kids, mm-hmm. the missing kids. <laughs> Or the, the murderers, because of the presence of Boogle, Mr. Boogie. Once again, it's effective. Another big part of the reason why I got that R rating, <laughs> probably the biggest part, because it's like here in the states we get it because of our history with violence. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a taboo subject when you have kids as the murderers, <laughs> especially in film. But this one, because I think it's rooted in the supernatural and stuff like that. I don't know, maybe not as believable. But it's once again, it's it's a natural fear because unfortunately, shit like that does happen, mm-hmm. you know. But I just think it was—I don't know if you could say tasteful in this film because that's a subjective term. But I think it's an effective way of doing that in this film and still leaning like, oh, 
this is more supernatural than yeah you know i understand especially based on precedent that we've already seen how it got pushed up to the r i still consider this a pg-13 movie yeah me too me even too. with the darkness it's a pg-13 movie it's a really well done pg-13 horror oh probably one of the more if not the most effective way of doing a solid pg-13 movie without seeing a whole bunch of on-screen violence and gore and all mm -hmm. that other stuff yeah, it's super effective, man. I think just showing it, like I said before, in his glasses, that's just enough to be effective. Or there was another time where... The cutaway? You still see a little bit of the screen? Yeah, or it goes super blurry because you get into the super close-up, super focused on him drinking the whiskey. Oh, yeah. Those are good, But man. you see just the movement. I will say this. Even though that, whatever it was, sleepy time, mm -hmm. that murder with the... Yeah. But when it showed the kid, like the little boy getting... That's when he turned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's doing that. But you do see where it starts to turn red. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's effective. You didn't need to show it. You know what's happening. And that's good. He's getting all sleepy Sorry. during that last bit. He is. That was good, man. That was clever as shit. The first like couple times that he yawned, I didn't put it together yet. No, no not yet. I knew that he was going to be getting his. But You didn't know exactly when. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, shit, she even left him the note. That was fucked up, right? <laughs> Yeah, that was good. I was like, oh, damn, she fucked his ass up. So I kept saying that I have a little bit of a problem with the end. Mm -hmm. Even though we were just singing the praises of this last segment, like it's a little bit of this last little bit when he learns all this information and stuff. For almost the entire movie, like I said, we've been one or two steps ahead. Until the very end where we stop learning information and we're learning it along with him where we learn it too late so that they just do this little wham at the end. Yeah. And I think it's just a storytelling choice. And I don't think they made the wrong choice because I still enjoyed it. But with the rest of the movie, us being a little bit ahead, I almost would have rather at the end be, we learn everything that Ranson was trying to tell him before he makes the trip. And then we have to watch him play exactly <laughs> into those steps. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So that we're like, no, don't fucking do that. No, don't do that. You're fucking doing exactly what he wants. Like, Yeah. Because we've kind of been doing that most of the movie anyway. So right. I thought it was weird that it suddenly flips at the end where now we're not going to tell you until he finds out just so that we can give you this whammy of you're already fucked. Exactly. And not that it feels rushed, but it kind of does a little bit. You know, like the pacing on that last little bit is a little... Contrary to what we've been led up to this point. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree with you there. It wasn't bad. It's just, you know, yeah. I definitely still liked it. I don't want to say I didn't like it. I just, it felt weird with yeah. the way the rest of the movie went. The one line I did like in this film, it was actually right there at the end, is what she tells Ethan Hawke, the daughter that is. It's like, don't worry, Daddy. I'll make you famous again. Oh, that was fucking good, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, she's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, that was fucked. Yeah, it wasn't bad, man. The red herring, I thought, is a clever play on words, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Given who the killer is of this family, it's a red hair girl. That's right. <laughs> the implication of the end, once they start showing the footage and the kids and after she's fucking hacked up, you yeah. don't know exactly what she's done, but then you see the picture she's made. and okay, Yeah, you like, get oh, it. Okay, I know yeah, 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 I got him. <laughs> um, and it's basically like she's passed her audition. Now she's part of... She's in the family. Boogie's gang. Yeah, yeah. Boogie's gang. I like it. <laughs> the implication is that... 
I guess it's technically supposed to be like the footage and the images are a doorway into his dimension. Another world, yeah. But it looks kind of like they live in the footage yeah, to a certain yeah. extent, right? Because they're interacting with it. They're still having to walk down that yeah, hallway. You know, like, to an extent, they are confined by what the image is. And it's kind of implied that too. Like, who was it? Professor Jonas said that early Christians believe that images were like the gateway you know, mm -hmm. a way of keeping him alive, so to speak. So it makes sense in this context. So I saw somebody throw this idea out online, and I wish I could credit him, but I didn't do enough writing <laughs> down of shit. Yeah. But with that understanding of, at least to a certain extent, live in those images when they're playing, does that mean that whenever somebody rewatches the footage, the family is effectively getting killed again? I think it's led to believe that, yeah. I was going to say, it also makes me wonder, I haven't watched the sequel, so I don't know, maybe it is, but it also feels like this is a setup of whoever is moving into this house is going to be the next victim, mm -hmm. you know, and so forth and such. It's just these houses and families moving in. It's an easy setup. <laughs> you know, it's good. I think that was an interesting way of having this connection with all these other families and the reason why they're labeled home movies and the way they're labeled the way they are is like makes it even more fucked up <laughs> one thing i kind of skipped over but i did want to point out for as much as i went in on him earlier in the movie i do kind of like the sheriff on the way out being like now you better fucking tell me if you guys are fucking bullied because i ain't having that be the way you guys leave yeah no that's solid man uh, i was like oh no that's actually kind of cool like it's kind of cool that he wants him gone, but he wants him gone the right way. He doesn't exactly. want his he doesn't... fucking town to be shitty to him. Right. That's another one of those things that was established earlier. He's like, you know, hey, people want to forget this kind of stuff. You know, we don't need to rehash it. This, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, you're right. Typically, those kind of characters are bullies and assholes and all the way antagonists. Through. Yeah, you're mm -hmm. right. But no, no, no. This is more sensible. And credit to the writing once again. After talking through it, I do think I like this movie a little bit more. I still don't necessarily think I'm the target audience. No, for as much likewise. As I like it. Oh, you know what? It's we haven't talked though. about the appearance of Boogie at all. What do you think of the look of Boogie? Not bad. It reminded me, and I know this has been said before, and I'm not saying this is where I got it from, but it did remind me of Kane, the wrestler, a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, uh, it's like Kane mixed with Baba Duke. Yeah, it kind of, it really is. I'm not the target <laughs> audience for that type of character. And I could have done without some of those jump scare moments. Like, it's effective, but like, ah. I was going to bring this up anyway. The jump scare at the very end, most of the time that kind of jump scare would bug the shit out of me. Yeah. But because they did it as the very last thing, like 10 minutes after they established that Boogie lives in images, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give that one to you. I don't <laughs> mind it. It's not yeah. my favorite thing, but it's kind of a fun thing to remind the audience at the end that, yeah. If Boogie exists and he lives in images, then here I am, bitch. Yeah, you're fucked now as an audience. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I get that. I'm just that. like, I'll let you have this and, and, more and than be pissed at it. There are several times in this film, too, where I knew it was coming. And then even though you know it and it hits, you're like, okay, I'll give you that because I know it's coming, but you don't know exactly when it's coming. Mm -hmm. And it can still startle you a little bit. But I'm like, eh, I've seen I mean, it. Technically, the lawnmower is a jump scare. It is. It is a jump scare because there's that cut, and it's just his reaction, and that's what makes you scared, <laughs> and the sound that goes along with it. But it's amazing. Oh, it's uh, so well done. Man, that, I will say, out of a lot of films we've watched, that is probably one of the more effective kill sequences, even though you don't see it. 
mm-hmm. it's super effective because you know it's going to be gruesome even though you don't need to see it but regardless i don't even know if seeing it makes it more effective yeah it'd be I, cool to see but i think this is a lot more effective i agree i 100 percent like, oh fuck <laughs> yeah that's probably arguably why it's my favorite you know it's good I think the only way that seeing it could be potentially as effective would not be to see it done, but to see the horrificness of the aftermath. Oh, boy. Because we get the jump scare aspect of it out of one. But there was like four victims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Whew. We didn't see it. But you can assume it's gruesome as fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Giving us a lot more. <laughs> we've done brain dead slash dead alive so we know what a lot more can do <laughs> trying to think if there's anything else I, that jumps out to me to say about this movie i will say this one thing that i noted very very early on and i think it's another one of those effective things with lighting and color scheme technique is that house and some of what they were wearing in the film was just saturated in blues mm. and i'm like you know that's kind of Typically in film, that's a cooling, it's a calming color, it's, you know, it doesn't signify horror per se, but it's a complete opposite in this film. These cool textures actually leading into something very, very more sinister, you know, so I thought that was kind of neat. Even though we both feel like the kid sequence is out of place, the one thing I did like that it set up extra tension for the rest of the movie, because so much of the rest of the movie is in shadow, and it just heightens the tension a little bit because now you know that at any time something can come out of there yeah and now it's been set up it's not just a jump scare it's something that Uh, could happen any moment yeah any moment nobody's safe i think what was another clever thing too is when he uh ethan hawk that is when he's checking on his daughter I, i guess the family when he's opening up doors and shit is the little girl ashley's she's looking right at that little missing girl stephanie with the painting on the wall of what happened in their backyard. You're like, damn, that is fucked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another one of those things. Like, nobody's safe in this house. Yeah. All right, so you might have been able to guess already from the name. The sequel does make it more explicit that Mr. Boogie Bagul is the inspiration for the Boogeyman. So they both claim to be the Boogeyman. They both hang out with dead kids. Who wins? Bagul? Or Mr. Oogie Boogie from Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> oh damn, that's like oh dude. I don't know. I have to. I'd have to rewatch Nightmare Before Christmas to give you an honest answer because it's been a minute. But you can make an argument. He's got more rhythm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. <laughs> anytime a it comes song and that I love his song in that. I was gonna say anything that deals with children. You know, that gets a little iffy. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm not the best person to. Have. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. You can't go wrong with Nightmare Before Christmas, dude. No. Like I said, I always group this with a certain group of movies, and now I feel like this rises above them. Oh, no doubt about it. And so I don't know where to group this with anymore. No. <laughs> I think those films we've already alluded to and named, this one definitely rises to the top because I have seen pretty much all of them. And this one stands out, even though it does follow a certain model you know, in the Blumhouse model, that is. This one's so much more effective, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's probably why not only was it successful, but it's successful in terms of being a frightening film for some people, not just horror fans. Like, you could bring in true crime fans, drama fans, 
you know, stuff like that. And it's super effective. What do you think the box office would have been if it would have gotten the PG-13? Because I'm thinking 150 on this. I was going to say almost double. Yeah. Oh, man. Off a $3 million budget. It I think it would have done 150. Yeah. Because now, yeah, you're reaching a larger audience. And it would have scared the daylights out of 13-year-olds on up. Probably, like you were saying, through early 20s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could see just a casual audience, too, getting this shit scared out of them with this film. And with that lasting impression, too. Like I said, right there at the end. It's like, okay, good time going to sleep tonight and driving home and all that shit. With a casual audience, once again, not trying to use it pejoratively. No, 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 no. Some no. people are casual into this. That last jump scare at the end is what leaves this movie with word of mouth. No doubt. This is what keeps people talking as they're walking out of the theater. Yeah, fun film. It would have been fun seeing this in the theater, not going to lie. I think so. I, I think this would be a great film to see with an audience. Yeah, because it's going to be effective. You're going to hear people probably snickering and then jumping. and I like all that emotional stuff that you get off of audience. It, it does make it more effective in the viewing. Mm-hmm. We suck at figuring out things in advance. Ah, it's okay, man. We have fun but because it makes it exciting, you know? I, <laughs> not, not that there's anything wrong with setting things up, you know? But sometimes it's the mystery that's fun. We'll do it again one of these days so that you guys <laughs> can get prepared to know exactly what we're talking about. But we're going to, I think, go try to decide what we're going to do next week for you. So for this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms? Out. Out. Hi everybody, Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, We highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network, uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, The easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. You can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. I'm not going to give you all those ats. So with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace.